for Anne and me, the presence of God has been central first to our conversion, and since that time, it's always been, it's the longing in our heart wherever we go that we inadvertently develop a culture around worship, and uh, it, it's profound. Before we were, uh, before we met the Lord, we were, went to these Jesus people meetings, and they sang scripture courses, and one caught our our imagination, we would drive around in our purple Volkswagen microbus singing Isaiah 55, 6, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Of course, it was all King James. And call ye upon him while he's near. <laughs> and uh, let the wicked forsake his ways. We were prophesying. <laughs> and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and he will abundantly pardon I just want to encourage you, when you're singing the Word of God, how many know Jesus is the Word of God? So it's like we were giving human voice to God incarnate, and we were getting converted. So another person who had that longing, I mean, but, and was actually a great sinner as well, was King David, and we we're just going to go there. God is always I mean, we think we're seeking him, he's seeking us. And David, remarkably, I mean, there's this whole story how the, this amazing God box was built. Uh, God gave the instructions because the people of Israel were afraid of God and, and he made a way that he would meet and speak. He would talk with, not to, the high priest once a year in the holiest of all, the holy place, first in the tabernacle of Moses, then under David's tent, then in Solomon's temple. And, uh, and he made a way, because, why? Because he loves humans. He made us in his image and likeness. And so the great lover of, of the entire Bible, David, David the shepherd boy, David the rejected by his own family, and uh, David who became the, the warrior, singer, and then king of Israel. David, who, who founded a dynasty on which Jesus, his descendant, sits. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if, if the king of kings named his throne after you, wouldn't that be an honor? I mean, this is something. So what was it with David? And here's the, the thought I had. I was in, when I was in Washington, D.C., I said, you know, there's a, a, what brings these, there were several thousand people there, what brings these people together is not, you know, I mean, the fight for America, all these things are, are there in the background, but what really brings them together is his presence. It, it's our warfare, isn't it? Martin led us so greatly in that song, you know, that when we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say, we don't know what to pray, we don't know what to do, ah, what are we gonna do? We're going to worship. Our worship is our warfare. And our worship is, but our worship, we're, it, it's communion with him. You know, we, we talk about the presence of God. The presence of God is always the presence of a person, isn't it? Jesus, we say, oh, I felt the presence. What? Yeah, you were feeling Jesus giving you a hug. You know, that's, a, okay. So here's the story. This, this God box, this ark, you know, was, was used correctly and incorrectly. 
And it got captured by the Philistines, which was hilarious, because once they got it, it was a hot potato. It, you know, they wanted to get rid of it. They, they sent it back to Israel on a cart, and, uh, and then it, it went to a place called Beth Shemes, and people were stupid there, and, and it didn't go well, and they got afraid of it too, so they put it in a man's house named Abinadab. And basically, it was there in storage. You know, and like we don't know anything about it for a period of 20 to 40 years, which is pretty crazy that this, this Ark of the Covenant was in this man's house for 40 years, and there's nothing written about it. Saul was king. He was worried about his popularity and trying to, trying to keep his votes up and stuff, so he didn't, he didn't bother with this God who makes himself available. And then came David. And then came David, and actually it was one of the first things. If you have your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel chapter six, and if, if you have devices or whatever, you can follow along, or you can watch the screen, take notes, think about this. Jesus, help us. So David, it, it was his very first priority. Like he, and once he got things settled, in Jerusalem, he said, I want to go get that Ark of the Covenant. And he had a plan. And so he was a leader. He gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. 30,000 warriors, uh, wise, prominent men, 30,000 influencers, 30,000 guys that he had been proven in battle or proven in other ways. They were the mighty men, the, the Gibberim, the chosen ones of Israel, and he arose and went, verse two, with all the people, because, you know, we really can't do this alone. I mean, we can have sweet communion with God alone, but there's something when we seek him as a people, when we have one voice and one heart, he shows up and he shakes things. All right, so um, they, they all go up to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, you know, who sits enthroned on the angels, on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, because that's what the Philistines did, and, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, where it was on the hill. And so Abinadab had two sons. Uzzah in Ohio, and Ohio was the driver. And Uzzah was riding shotgun. He was, you know, just walking alongside the cart, make sure God didn't hurt himself. Or, and uh, so then what happens is they're celebrating. They're going wild, verse five. They're celebrating with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And, and they're just trying to figure out what these Hebrew words means. But they had, they had a lot of noisemakers and a lot of instruments. And... Uh, but then something happened. They came to a threshing floor, the th threshing floor of Nacon, and, uh, and the oxen stumbled, because threshing floors were like rocky places where there were natural ridges and they were flat, but, but it was rough ground, so they'd spread out all their wheat or barley. They'd dry it out, and then they'd spread it on the threshing floor, and then the oxen would walk around and crush it all up and separate the chaff from the seed, the grain, the corn in, in Old English. But the, uh, and so not to be confused with sweet corn that Pennsylvanians like to eat. Um, okay, so, as, but, so they get there, and this is a big cart, heavy cart with big wooden wheels, and it hits these rocky ridges, and it stops, and the oxen actually stumbled. When they stumbled, something happened, 
it, it like they jerked the cart and it seemed like the ark maybe, I wasn't there, but probably, you know, it was like, looked like it was gonna tip off. And Uzzah did what any of us would have done, human response. He reached out his hand and when he did, boom, he was gone. You know, he was like on the, and he was dead. And it's like, now this is a big problem, not for Uzzah because my own personal opinion is he went right into the presence of the Lord. God was angry, but his anger is not like our anger. You know, it's just like, nah, that's not how it works. And it says, so I, I need to teach David an object lesson. Uzzah, come spend eternity with me. But now David's got this dead guy on the ground. This is an honor-shame society. He brought out 30,000 men because he wanted to honor the king of kings. And now the king of kings has dishonored, not, I mean, it might appear it was Uzzah, but it was the guy who thought the whole thing up. And now David is humiliated. And and I'll read this part out of the message, starting with verse 8. But here's the crazy thing. David's misstep is going to release blessing. Isn't that good that God, I mean, even in our lives, sometimes the very, our biggest mistake can turn out if you, if you keep your heart after God to be the greatest blessing to the most people. <laughs> That's why he picks who he picks. Okay, verse eight. Then David got angry because of God's deadly outburst against Uzzah. The place is still called Peres Uzzah, the explosion against Uzzah. David became fearful of God that day. So he's angry and he's afraid. These don't sound like fruits of the Holy Spirit and said, this chest is too hot to handle. How can I ever get back? How can I ever get it back to the city of David? And verse 10, he refused to take the chest of God a step farther. Instead, he removed it off the road to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, the, the, the key word there is Gittite, which means he's from Gath. This is where Goliath lived. He was a Philistine. Hundreds of Philistines followed David and his men when they returned to Israel from Ziklag, evidently they were drawn to the God of Israel, they were drawn to the culture, something like that, maybe the economy, who knows why people immigrate, but he was, he was there and it just happened, by, <laughs> but nothing's an accident, that the oxen stumbled near his house and David's like, what are we gonna do? We can't just leave this box that's sitting out here in the cold, and David says, put it in that guy's house, the Gittite, and maybe David knew him, maybe, you know, who knows, but so now some guys, I mean, can you imagine how they feel? They got to pick the ark up by, by the poles and they carry it and they knock on the door and they say, Obed-Edom. And he's like, whoo, there's soldiers there. What are you doing? I'm sure they heard the noise of the celebration, suddenly got quiet. And now they're, the guys are knocking on his door, soldiers and mighty men. And he says, uh, we need this box to stay in your house. The king sent us. So fortunately, they had a spare bedroom. They said, okay, well, no one's here. You know, they put it in the spare bedroom. They, they closed the door, and they said, whatever you do, don't touch it. The last guy who touched it died, and, and there was a whole history of damage where people inappropriately approached the, the in, interface with God. And so they're like, okay, so now Mrs. Uh, I, uh, Mrs. Ovidino, I'm sure, is like nervous. What about the kids? Are we all gonna die? Why is this happening to us? Why did we move here? Maybe we should go back to God. You know, all this stuff. You know, pity the poor immigrant, you know? And so, so here they are in this place, and they go to bed that night. Maybe, you know, it takes them a long time to go to sleep. They're worried, and this is my imagination, but, but Ovidino wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's glad he's still alive. Okay. And he thinks like, but actually he's not just alive, he actually, wow, 
I feel really refreshed. It's only two o'clock in the morning. I don't know if they use that language, but to measure time. But, they, but he, he says, I'm, I'm going to go see if that everything's okay. You know, are the kids still alive? You know, and, and, he go, and he goes around the house, and then he feels drawn to something. He's drawn to the presence of a person, radiant from this room where it is. And so he goes and stands near the door. Maybe he gets lost in time because he's having an encounter with the love of God that he's never experienced in his whole life. And he doesn't know how much time's gone, but he goes back to bed and maybe he sleeps a little. Maybe he just lays there and wonder. Wakes up in the morning, notices his wife is more beautiful. Gets up, notices the kids are more well-behaved and handsome and smart and brilliant. And they start singing songs and writing things and, and playing the piano without lessons and all of this stuff. And, and they go outside and their garden looks better and their, their goats and their sheep and their cattle are better and sleeker and, and, and more well-behaved. And this goes on and on. And so it's like, well, this is a good deal. You know, meanwhile, David's back in Jerusalem like, what did I do wrong? You know, so he's studying, he's doing all these things and he figures out, okay, I don't think we're supposed to do it on the cart, you know. And, and, uh, and so meanwhile, he, he's He's singing, okay, I'm gonna, I need this in my capital. Whether he knew what it was or not, he, he, had, he had encountered God. He had written Psalms already before he was king. And, and, uh, and he said, I, I want him near us all. I don't know how to be king. I need God here. And so all of these things, so he's studying about, and he realized, okay, the Levites have to carry it, and he's thinking, like, he likes sacrifice, he likes altars. So he plans this elaborate, elaborate altar and celebration and honoring of God, and he figures it out, and he blames it on the other guys. You guys didn't tell me we were supposed to do this way. He was a shepherd and a warrior. You know, he wasn't like a scholar, but now he's got it figured out. Okay, we're gonna, this is how we're going to do it. And then he, you know, three months go by. Obed-Edom's life's getting better and better. His relatives come to stop by, and they just say, we don't want to leave. Do you mind, do you have a little extra ground here? Could we just like pitch a tent and sleep by your house? And pretty soon he's got this whole community of maybe 70 of his relatives just living around him. And, and it's amazing. And so he sends somebody out, go see if Obed-Edom's still alive, you know. And the guy comes back and he says this to the king. Um, <laughs> verse... Verse, well, I'll read verse 11, because this is what I just was trying to describe imaginatively. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Isn't that great? You know, he's given, how, he who's given us his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things with him? Just saying. Okay, so, um, the, but here's the deal. The guy comes back, and he, it was told King David, the Lord, Yahweh, has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So, see, the blessing on one family became a catalyst for the release of the promises of God for a city, for a nation, and ultimately to the world. Is that wild? I mean, whew. and so, and it, I mean, and the whole thing, you know, it kind of foreshadows the new covenant, like the stumbling of Israel became the salvation of the nations. The stumbling of David's heart and his oxen feet brings 
the blessing of God on a, on a Gentile, on a Goyim family, just saying. And uh, so the depths and the rich, you know, riches and wisdom of God, oh, <laughs> like, it, it's amazing. So the, what God does is he makes outsiders insiders. Were any of you sinners before you became saints? I mean, that's like, isn't that the greatest miracle that he turns sinners into saints? You know, so here's Obed-Edom getting sanctified, glorified by the presence of God. And so David wants in on it. So the rest of verse 12, David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. You know, so he's not worried. He's not fearful. He's gotten over his anger. He's like, we're going to rejoice. We're going to celebrate. And, uh. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, what this means is there's tremendous planning that went into this. So actually, uh, archaeologists have found what they believe is the house of Abinadab. It's a, it's a, a village, it's about 10 miles out of Jerusalem, it's called Abu Ghosh. There's a, a convent, a French bunch of uh, uh, French priests started looking for this during the 1800s, founded a convent, and it's called uh, the, the convent of L'Arche d'Alliance, the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, it's of Marie L'Arche d'Alliance. And they have that insight that now humans have become the Ark of the Covenant. You know, so anyway, so knowing where the house of Abinadab was, you, you can kind of trace it like where, you know, on a foot, like, okay, we're traveling on foot here. How do we get to Jerusalem? And well, we, first they were traveling on cart. Well, about three miles from, and who knows where this happened? Maybe it was like 50 feet from Abinadab's house, but about three miles closer to Jerusalem is this rocky ridge. And, um, and it, maybe that's where the threshing floor uh, of Nacon was. And so either way, you know, whether it's like, seven miles or 10 miles, when they went six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So that's about every 15 feet. And you know, these guys are not, probably not speed walking. You know, say they're walking like 1.5 miles per hour, nice stately procession, because there's celebration and there's shouting and horns being blown and all kinds of instruments. And so, but every six paces, there's an altar. So the extravagance that went into that of, of cutting the wood and having it stacked, having, you know, three to 4,000 oxen gathered and distributed and having all enough Levites with enough knives and enough, and enough fire starters. And my thought is that if, if they put the altars all on the same side, they would have just each one would have lit the next one and pretty soon there would be this out of control fire, which <laughs> wouldn't be too good. So I think they had an altar on alternating sides every 15 feet, so they were 30 feet apart. And, but you know, I mean the timing, they had, to, they had to light these fires, they had to kill the animals and prepare them for the, for the whole burnt offerings on these things all ahead of time, thousands of people, like literally, depending, if it's 10 miles, it, there would have been 35, over 3,500 altars. If it was seven miles, there would be about 2,500 altars. And so they're all being 
prepared, they're all being lit, and as they, as they bring the presence of God into Jerusalem with all the sound and all the celebration, there's this multi-sensory experience, which you can actually have if you visit an Orthodox church, and uh, <laughs> with the sense, like where did the bells and smells come from? It, this is the picture. You know, they got smoke, they got singing, they got, and they, I mean, and some scholars believe that the pathway they walked was, was all blood, that they were walking in the blood because great was the number of these slain animals. Why would David do this? He was making an extravagant offering to the Lord. He was honoring him. He was, you know, like he was, because he says, I want to make sure I don't dishonor him. And what did he do? I mean, they got caught up in it. The presence of God came. They were, um, you know, he, verse 14, he danced before the Lord with all his might. And he, he took off his royal robes and he was wearing a linen ephod. He, he was being undignified. Was that one of your songs, Martin? I'll, I'll be yet more undignified. Okay. Yeah, that was someone else. Okay, but that was a good song, right? How many remember singing? <laughs> you know, okay, some other friend we had. It's all a blur as I get older. But anyway, but I mean, do you understand? Like these guys, like they're passing eight or nine of these altars every minute and they're walking for hours. Like just let it sink in. This is why we spend time in worship. This is why we, wait, like there's, Actually, nothing better you can do. You can read the news feed. You can get all offended at all the bad decisions that are being made. Or you can just get up, get on your knees, get before the Lord, contemplate the cross. You could celebrate communion in your own sanctuary. You know, you're you're royal priests. You have the authority. You can, you know, you you can follow 1 Corinthians 11 or one of the gospels and you can just... Spend time with God. You know what you're doing? You're establishing this thing where, where his presence comes. Like we, we don't have firefall very often, you know, like maybe hardly ever that there's any kind of visible fire. I think a few times people have told me there was fire here and stuff. And we have some video uh, footage of, of things going up and down and stuff from, from yet past years. But those are like, unique and glorious times, but you, what, here's what David was doing. He was, so he gets to his city and then it it just all cuts loose and he makes great offerings, burnt, whole burnt offerings where everything that's like total dedication. God, I am, you know, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm, everything belongs to God. And then he was making peace offerings. And the deal with the peace offerings is you just, Sacrifice part of the animal and you save the rest for a feast. And so at the end of that, I mean, it's like the place is going crazy. David has succeeded in bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the center of his capital. His tent, for 40 years, there's no record of any structure in it. There were thousands of singers and musicians who would minister before the Lord night and day. There was a continual presence of God, this sacrifice of praise which we're invited to make, the fruit of our lips giving thanks, that we have an altar to eat from that the priests of the former covenant couldn't eat from. We, 
We're invited to participate in the Lord, body and blood, soul and divinity, like that, that he's in you, the hope of glory, that you're in him. Isn't that wild? I mean, it's like, and so this is the culture for 40 years. It, really, it turns the whole city into the holy place. People, you know, people are just getting ideas and inventions and solving problems. I'm telling you, this worship movement, don't let it die with one generation. That's why I actually think this um, we will worship movement that Sean has started. I know, we know Sean. You know, he, when he lived here, we know. Nobody's gonna shut Sean Foyd up, you know, whether you want to or not. He can't. And so when Governor Newsom not only said that churches couldn't meet, but that they couldn't sing or chant. He said, okay, I'm gonna do this. And meanwhile, Antifa and you know, people were rioting and, that was, and, and actually Governor Newsom said, God bless you. <laughs> like what God are you talking about here? Anyway, so he got up with some friends on the Golden Gate Bridge and they just began to worship and that was the beginning of the movement. And, uh, and they've gone around the country and I feel like they were, they were like, these were like little, you know, fountains of light in the darkness, hope awakening the, the discouraged church. And, I, and now we, so we want to do this personally. Do you understand? I mean, we want to create this in our home because here's what happened. Years later, I mean, Israel went from a struggling tribal kingdom that was oppressed by everyone else around it because they had better technology and bigger numbers, into a dominant empire for a period of, of 80 years. And it was an empire that brought blessing and wisdom, and we're still being fed. Western civilization was fed from three cities, Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome, when it was under the Republic. And all the wisdom of, par, you know, of like the British, uh, the British parliamentary um, monarchy, the American Republic, all of these ideas came from those three cities and the culture. It was like this fusion of wisdom. And now we have the opportunity as born again, new covenant people all over the world, no matter what country we're in, that by worship, we release the river. By worship, we release his presence. By worship, we sanctify our communities, our city, our state, our nation. By worship, by, by spending time, and I'm not talking about just coming to a church and singing songs, but I'm talking about a lifestyle where we value and prioritize a living relationship with God that we open our mouth and we speak the word and we sing the word and in those moments when you need to speak a word before a hostile audience, the Holy Spirit will speak through you because you've been doing it on a regular practice. It's kind of like, you know, that, anyway, it's the 10,000 hour principle to be an outlier, to, to have an excellent spirit on you like Daniel and his three friends when they were transported to the dark kingdom, the dark empire of Babylon. So, but here's the thing. Our worship provides a feast for many. It releases prosperity, it releases creativity, it releases mercy. And when we, you know, we begin to, begin to minister to the poor, like, like there's just, you know, harvest fields begin appearing and God sends harvesters for the harvest field. I'm just saying, this all happens. But here's what I wanna point out, and here's where we are. I'm gonna end it. 
quickly, because, hmm, I'm a little over. Okay, the, uh, <laughs> I was waiting for my watch to buzz my rich, wrist, but it failed me. Okay, the, uh, <laughs> that all those fires he lit, he was sowing something to God. You know, he was, every offering, every altar was to God. And then there came a day when by his own stupidity, he had brought a plague on to Israel. 70,000 people died. He was devastated. What should I do? The Lord brought him to a hill and there he saw a threshing floor. And a man named Aruna, at least in one of the, Orna or Aruna, is threshing on that floor with oxen. Hmm, oxen, threshing floor, and, and says, make a sacrifice. So he goes, he buys it from, from Aruna, buys the oxen, buys the threshing sledge, builds an altar. Aruna says, I'll give it to you. And he said, David said, no, I will not give a sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. And so he buys it and he, he gets it all ready. One problem, he didn't have any fire starters and fire fell from heaven and stopped the plague. Stand up. I just want to encourage you that all these fires, like why have we done this? Why have we, I mean, why have we, we've invested so much in sound technology and, and, and we encourage musicians so much and creativity and all these other areas. And now we have the video people and all this technology so we can actually send it out live stream for all you live stream folks, all our friends in California and other nations, God bless you. But why are we doing this? We, you know, we're doing this because we know in our day of need, we need fire to fall from heaven and consume the altar and stop the plague. Stop the plague of, of you know, sexual anarchy that's being fed to our students. Stop the plague of cultural Marxism that wants to destroy every existing institution, including the nuclear traditional family, including normal language. Like, why would you have to learn someone's pronouns? It's self-evident to every two-year-old. A three-year-old, what is a woman, what is a man? I mean, just, duh, you know, cows know it. Squirrels know it. But we actually have a sitting Supreme Court justice who when asked what is a woman, she said, I can't answer that question. I'm not a doctor. Well, obviously doctors that are involved in, in these horrible mutilation surgeries don't know either. Jesus, help us. Do we need fire to fall and stop the plague? Okay. So God, we thank you that you're a God who answers by fire. We thank you, God, that you brought us to this place of dire need. We thank you, God, that around the world there is there's maybe an unprecedented level of turmoil, persecution in places we would expect and would not expect. God, we thank you for this time of need, and we ask you that you would send fire onto our altars, God, that all that we've offered, all our offerings, and all our time, and all our devotion, God, that you would answer from heaven, that you would hear from heaven, you would forgive our sins, and you would heal our land and stop the plague in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So we just wanna, I just lift your hands up. And then after I'm gonna dismiss and I'm telling you there's healing here. Oh, I mean, during worship, I've, it's been, I think more than a, a few years since I felt 
this strong healing presence on me, you know, and I'm just saying, God is going to do it. He's not going to just do it again. He's going to do it new and better. Okay. Holy Spirit, fall, fall on all our offerings, fall on all our prayers, God. Take them and receive them as honor and love and desire to see you and not to, so that we can have a better life, but so that the gospel can be preached, so that boys and girls would know their identity, that they were made in the image of God. God, that marriage would be restored to sanctity according to your original plan. God, that the corruption in governments and high places would actually be changed by the sanctification of your people, God, that you would do again what you did through William Wilberforce, what you did through George Whitfield, what you did through John Wesley, that you would do again what you did with great leaders like Abraham Lincoln, like the founding fathers of our own nation and many good leaders in many nations through all history. Let your fire fall, God. Consume our sacrifice and stop the plague in Jesus' name. And I just bless you and I just speak the blessing of God over you. June 24th, 624, number 624. The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, turn his face toward you, give you shalom. June 24th is the feast of the nativity of John the Baptist, God. Let the forerunners arise, let this next generation arise with like a John the Baptist identity, God, that there would actually be a renewal and a reawakening that would lead to a reformation and a restoring in Jesus' name, that there would be a harvest in many nations that we've never seen before. God, that worship and the Word of God would find a priority and a centrality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, sorry that I was yelling there, but it needs to be proclaimed. God bless you, uh, ministry team, if you'd come forward, and thank you for coming. Hey, don't forget Wednesday night. It's going to be amazing. Shift America. We're gonna shift America, amen, with God's help, of course. Thank <laughs> you.